Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today the sermon I'm going to preach is entitled The Fellowship of the Saints. And uh, I must lay a disclaimer, underscored that this message might be for you, but also it might not be for you. It might be for that person who is not here today. It might be for another that one time you will need the language to extend the convictions that I share this afternoon to another person, to your children, to your friends. And so if in whatever I'm saying you knew already by conviction and revelation, add to what I'm going to teach this afternoon and then give it to those that need it. But there is a huge danger of us assuming that everybody knows it, yet you don't. Our reading today comes from Hebrews, the 10th chapter. I'm going to begin from the 23rd verse of read up to the 25th. It says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised us. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, without switching posts. Verses 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and unto good works. To provoke unto love and unto good works. And there's a full column there. The extension of this portion I've read in 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, 25 explains how that is done, and that is not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let me repeat verses 25. Not forsaking the assembling of others together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day of Christ approach. Paul was talking to the Hebrews about... Uh, a few individuals who went off course and contrary to the order of the Spirit. You see, because you don't live an orderly life in the things of the Spirit, it does not presuppose or suppose that the Spirit realm is not ordered. Bible says, let all things be done decently and in order. There should be order in the house of the Lord. There should not be any manner of confusion or corruption in the way designed for our worship. Many believers don't know that coming to church is more than just coming to sit in a chair and enjoying what the preacher is preaching. You know, there are many other aspects and dimensions of thought divine that are designed by God to even teach you how to enter in the presence of God, how to enter 
in this system called worship. And we have many believers who, even though are, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, they have uh, not learned how to behave in the presence of God. You know, sitting in this presence requires a very disciplined life. Because Justice 5.1 says, watch your step when you enter God's house. Watch your step when you enter God's house. Enter to learn. That's far better than mindlessly offering a sacrifice and doing more harm than good. In other words, how you even relate with God in his presence defines whether you are going to walk or function in God's best or not. I always emphasize God's best because I know in this world there are permissive wills and there are perfect wills. See, there's that which God desires for you and there's that which you may choose out of rebellion. That's entirely up to you. Are you following me, child of God? It goes even in the little small things that almost seem insignificant, yet to heaven are. When you come to the church of Jesus and an usher tells you, sit there, that's not just an usher talking to you. They are instructed and mandated to follow the order of the house. And by that order, God, even beyond where the seat uh, has been assigned to you, might be or could be testing your heart against a simple obedience to say, if I don't put you in front where the cameras are, will you sit? If I put you next to somebody who is inconveniencing, will you still sit in my presence? Those little things test us. And some of you, even the attitude you have built in the world is the very thing you import in the presence. A preacher tells you, kindly sit down. That's an instruction from the altar. Then somebody just continues moving and doing everything contrary to the instruction. Oh, people in the back, kindly take your seats. That's an instruction. There is an unction from the Spirit of God, from that minister to tame you because you might never know or understand what this minister sees when he instructs you. You see? And many of you are too blind from the correlation between the disobedience in those little small things and the consequences that come so costly that almost as though you cannot tell the difference. Because you think, oh, maybe I'm being frustrated in life because of a certain thing that is so big. And sometimes it's those little small things. It's the way you behave yourself in the house of the Lord. I've had experiences of, you know, my ashes reporting of some of you insulting them or some of you speaking rudely against them or disrespecting them. And these people, some of them are even way elevated than you are in life spiritually or otherwise. But they're doing this because they're servants of God. You see? But you might never know because you think that they're less. No, they're not less. They just are doing their part. Security person tells you park here and then you insult them because, ah, you know, security, you know. Why? Because you're used to your guard at home. No, these ones are not paid. They're not on a salary. They're volunteers. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But you are frustrating the very system that you are inviting in your life of prayer for blessing, success, and progress. And that's not how life works. See, that discipline has to begin from here. Of course, some of you, your parents did not do a good job. So some of the things you were to learn in your father's house, you are learning here. And that's okay. At least learn. Praise the Lord Jesus. Are you following me? Now, the church of Jesus Christ began as, um, as a bunch of outlaws that, you know, Judaism or Judistic teaching had issues with because they were proclaiming that the Christ had come in the flesh and yet Judaism does not believe that Christ is come in the flesh. Were isolated, persecuted. Paul was among the persecutors. So when the church began, it began on what they call Solomon's porch. You know what a porch is? 
A porch is like an extension of covering on a building. For example, if you see this building you're seated in, for example, there's a shed that is extended outside. Okay? People used to put sheds to shield themselves from rain or or probably somebody's under the shed against the sun because they're waiting to meet somebody or they're resting for a long journey. The porch was outside. So that's where the church, this ginormous thing that you see hit the world, especially in the Gentile world, it began from a porch outside. Why? Because they were isolated and refused from entering inside. God has a way of working more without than within. And I've seen that pattern always. I studied the story in um, 1901. There was a very wonderful minister called Charles Parham. And he was leading a movement, as is called the father of modern Pentecostalism. During that time, there were Jim Crow laws. Those laws were segregated, so they refused people of uh, black skin to, you know, congregate with people of white color. And during that time, of course, Charles Parham's heart was not that. He wanted to congregate with anybody, but the laws will hold him accountable if he did. So there was a young man who used to sit outside the stairs and listened through windows and doors, and his name was William Seymour. And uh, in the smoldering heat and the blistering cold, you know, he always sat outside, you know, listening, 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 listening. And uh, the power flew over these boys in the room and girls and went and met a young man outside and ordained him, anointed him heavily. By 1905, which was about five years from that date, this young man, black boy, became the leader of the most remarkable movement in Pentecostal history called the Azusa Street. God has a way of looking for people outside. God has a way of looking at the disgruntled, disadvantaged, and pouring his power on them. That's why by choice he chose Saul from the least tribe, the smallest family. Okay, so... Don't underestimate the least people around you because he works most through them. In fact, you should be attracted to the least. Your eyes should always catch the poorest, the weakest. Your eyes should always be there and seek to do them good. When you have that understanding, it's amazing the things God will do in your life because you're not advantaged by chance or coincidence. Are you learning something? So anyway, the church grew and grew and grew. And as it continued to grow, a bunch of believers started polarizing. They started intercepting the waves of divine order and the flow of those frequencies and started to isolate themselves from the congregations. And they started to build doctrines around these isolations. And uh, much as they seemed logical, they were not in divine order and thought. And so Paul calls these groups back and tells them, look, you must consider one another to provoke yourselves and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling together as others do. Because there are certain individuals that had started, like I said, separating themselves, polarizing, isolating themselves in the name of, and I've seen it even in present day. Today we've coined this statement that salvation is personal. And that statement is true, but in truth submitted to a, another law. You see? All truth is absolute and important, but some truths are ranked higher or subservient to other truths. Are you following what I'm saying? That's how God has designed the revelation, the Bible, the word that you read. Some truths are subject to other truths. Only if 
you do certain things, then are you subject to do other things? Without fulfilling one part, the other part that you're preaching will be incomplete and wanting until you bring it in consonance and agreement with, you know, the other part. And unfortunately, we have people who function in parts and the fullness. And you can always tell the fruit in the end that I emphasize. So yes, salvation personal, 100%, because the relationship you share with God and your heart. But in the personalization of your salvation is also a divinely designed order of God to hold you accountable. You understand what I'm saying? There's an accountability required of the personalized salvation that you have in Christ. Let, let me explain what I mean. So if you say that salvation is personal, therefore I deal with my God the way I see fit. If I want to do this, this is me and God, you have no business with it. If I want to do this, this is me and God. Yes, but that is in lieu of your submission and accountability to the bigger picture of divine order designed by God. Does that I mean that because you are living a personalized salvation, therefore you should break the code and pattern God has designed for your success because you are personal with God? Because there are things he has not designed to be accessed in your secret place, even though you have a secret place. There are things he has designed to be uh, connected to or received or accessed from without your secret place. I'll give you an example. The Bible says that wisdom is on the streets. Do you know the meaning of that portion of scripture? Wisdom is on the streets. Now, you can say, yeah, the Bible says that in Jesus Christ are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are right. The Bible says he has been made unto us wisdom. You are right. Every treasure of wisdom and knowledge is in the Christ which dwells among you or in you. But the same Bible tells us that wisdom crieth out on the streets. That means even though Christ, your wisdom, is resident in the inside of you, there is a certain place of understanding in this wisdom that you can only find on the streets, not the mountain. So you could polarize and say, no, let me go on the mountain, and God would say, no, this is not the kind you would get in your consecration, personal space. This is something that you will find uttering its voice in the streets. And if you do not know how to walk by the bulwarks, eh, the Bible says, walk by the streets, walk through Zion. Observe her citadels. Observe her bulwarks. Psalms 48 verses 12. And tell the towers thereof. Mark you well the bulwarks. Consider her palaces. The Bible says that you might tell it to the generation following. In other words, if you don't have the grace to walk through Zion, the street, okay, and not the mountain from your praying place, but if you don't get the wisdom and grace to walk through Zion and observe certain things, you will not have a message for the generation to come or your generation. Now, I'm talking to ministers. You might have a message to feed you and clothe you, but you will not have a message for the generations to come. For any man who should have a message that will outlive them, that man not only knows the secret of the mountain, but they understand the wisdom of the street. Maybe let me put it in common sense. Imagine you have a kid who goes to school and then, you know, uh, studies... Uh, developmental studies as a degree. Okay, you have a degree in developmental studies. What does that mean? Think about it. What does developmental studies mean? What does business administration mean? Business administration means that you are 
you know, sharpening your acuity in business or in development studies that you are living in a country that requires some sort of development in many aspects and that there's a training or skill that has been imparted to you that is a contributive factor to the growth and development of that nation. See, now, that does not mean that because you have that degree, therefore you understand how the world works. You see what I'm saying? How do you say you know how to develop a nation yet you don't even know what is required to run a company? 20 years, you have your degree on your head and then you ask a, a business administrative student and ask them, what are the requirements of opening a company account? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but you know that there's a business, right? There's something you, you require to register this business. Yeah, that you need a certificate of incorporation, a memorandum of articles of association. You need a resolution, you know, and, and all these other aspects that are necessary for you to run that business. These are not things that they might pick fully in school. These are things that they might indulge with or that might indulge them while they are on the streets trading while they're running errands. So you meet a person who's been on the streets for so long and they know everything and more that you have studied. And because you are not connected to the wisdom of the streets, you think that you can make it in life by cramming your theories. No, 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 no. You have to transition into some sort of training to make the theories useful in the practical sense. Are you following? So it is with the spirit realm. I know people who are so, you know, attuned spiritually. They do mountains, they pray, and I believe in that. I do that almost, you know. I have my late hours of prayer. I am a man of prayer. I love to pray. But I have to be able to translate that world into the world where, as I connect to what I can receive directly from the altar of my secret place, because the Bible says, when you enter your secret place, shut your door. And the God who sees you in secret will reward you openly. There is a reward of every man who knows how to secretly pursue God. But, there is also a wisdom that I have realized I will not pick from that closet. I will pick on the streets. I'll pick in the congregation, in relationship with the people that the Lord has surrounded me with. That's why it's important to define your friends. Do you agree or you don't? Yeah. So I've seen people who isolate and they say, I know me, I don't need fellowship. I don't need that. I don't need this. And Paul is telling them, no, you guys are making a mistake. Because there's a bigger picture to this. And as I continue to explain this and unravel this mystery, you will understand why it's important not to give up on the fellowship as others have done. Genesis tells us in 2.18, it is not good that a man should be alone. The only issue is that many of you understand that portion of scripture only from the understanding of Adam and Eve, marriage and relationship. Because when we're teaching in marriage, you know, we usually use that portion of scripture to say it's not good that man should be alone. But this is generically uh, implied that even if it's not marriage, God has not designed a human being to be alone. The word there is should. It is not good that man should be alone. God has not designed you to be this island, spiralized frequency and wave that just determines how it lives and whatever it does because salvation is personal. God has called you into fellowship with fellow believers. Praise the Lord. That is why there are people who get in so much trouble and are deeply wounded by the devil because they don't understand this simple secret. It is simple but very deep. 
In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8, and I want us to study very keenly. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. God here has given us an antidote. He has given us the secret to study the pattern of how the devil works. That the devil works with a kind of cat spirit. If you study how cats work when they're seeking for prey, he says, study the devil and see how he works. Every tenet and pattern he works through to get you and destroy you is the way of a cat. Now, study the animal kingdom. Those of you who watch Nat Geo, or you know, you can go on YouTube right now and study how lions hunt and everything. If, for example, lions bump into a herd of buffaloes, okay, have a bunch of buffaloes, and they want to eat meat. What do these lions do? They will create some sort of council. They are watching each other. They're sniffing and stealthily coming close to their prey. And then, in wisdom, start suckling it off to isolate it from the herd. Isn't it? They come slowly, slowly, and then one is going the other side, and this one is going this side, but the herd is there. Lions don't go straight into herds they first get one point and say this is the one we want. And then they start going slowly, 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 slowly. Quiet. And then before you do, boom. So yes, you might see the heart scatter, but their target is one thing, one creature. If they can just get this beast. And so once they isolate this beast, they what? They devour. And I told you your enemy as an adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion. In other words, one of the deepest secrets of how he consumes his adversary is by isolating them. Some of you don't know that if the devil wants you right now, he might do the least expected thing by creating something, an impression, a rumor, a gossip, some silly thought that will get you out of fellowship with others. You were okay while you were in the fellowship. You were okay before you had any nonsense. And then somebody comes and puts a silly rumor in your spirit. Oh, this is this, this is that. Probably they say something wrong about the people you congregate with or the minister or the ministry. And then it consumes you. And then the next thing you know, I'm not going back. You isolate. And then like a lion, he pounces on you. And then you look at the person who was deceived and their life is not better than they were when they were in the fellowship. Their lives are never the same. They're never better. You look at the people who have been deceived and study their lives. They're not better than they were when they were under cover. Because you don't even know that by just sitting next to that person you're sitting next to, they might not have a good sense. They might not, you know, have a job. They might have a nasty attitude. But the point is the fact that there is enough warmth in this room because you're seated next to somebody. Every man comes with a vibration. Every man comes with a frequency. And the coordination of these things and reconciliation creates a certain corporate anointing that preserves you in ways you will never understand. You might never understand it, but it keeps you even just to come and sit. You see, when we, when we read the Bible and it says that two are better than one, you know what that means? Because if one is cold, another one can give heat. Again, we only use that when we're talking about marriage. But this thing extends beyond your marital destinies. Two are better than one. There is somebody you can come in fellowship with and then they light you up. And there are people you can come in fellowship with and then they dim you. Isn't it? So Paul tells the Hebrews, 
Because some people assume that they are wiser than Paul. But regardless of what you do in life, God has designed you to be in some sort of fellowship. You might say, ah, ah, I don't like that fellowship. Okay, if you come out of that fellowship, do me heaven and everyone a favor. Look for a fellowship and be somewhere. Don't isolate. You will die. I don't care how anointed you are. I don't care how deep you are. I don't care how much you claim to know the word. You cannot claim to break principle, code, and pattern in the name of conviction when you're not aligned to the truth of that order. It does not work that way. And I've seen people who are deliberately designed principles that don't exist in scripture and live lives that are not agreeable to the patterns God has designed only because either they are naturally rebellious or they are deeply indifferent due to their foundation. You know, it also matters how you entered salvation. It matters. You know, we have people who, they're not in the world, for example, they're not lost, but they've lost the fire. They are quenched. You look at this person and say, ah, this man was fervent. He was this. Well, was it just a season and then they transitioned into a better ministry? No. Something killed that flame. Because many times when we underestimate that when we are in the world, we are only ruled by the world of pleasure. And when we shift from that world of pleasure into the world of the spirit and salvation, we are usually seeking for compensations to minister to the sorrow that we've carried for the loss of the pleasures we had in the world. And these pleasures also that are in God, you see, in thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore, you know, the pleasures of the spirit also come with so much, you know, cravings. And then we go deeper and deeper. But when we get to the end of those pleasures, because there's always an end to every pleasure, when we get to the end of those pleasures, seeking an elevation, if we are not trained, attuned, you know, in our spirits, ready for the next phase of our maturations because we're not prepared right in foundation, many a time when these pleasures start whining out, we assume that that's the end of God. And many a time easily we start to find ourselves falling back in the old passions and pleasures because in the middle here we lost a very important aspect which is death. We don't teach men how to die fast to the world before we introduce them to this world. So they keep certain doors and windows to the other pleasures. You know, so the Bible says that it is hard for people who have tested of the heavenly giftings and the powers of the ages to come. If they should fall away to restore them, seeing that they crucified Christ again. Many of you read that portion of scripture, but you don't know what it means. Because when a man has not gone through this death and they fall out into salvation and come back into this pleasure, it is very hard to restore them. Why? Because they don't understand death. Some sort of death has to take place. Yeah? That's why I say it seemed that they crucified Christ again. I remember in university, some guy told me, uh, uh, for you, those are the flames of early what? Conversions. Time will come and it will burn out. Because that was his experience. Well, I have been serving God now close to 20 years. I am on fire for God than I have ever been before. Because I understood some patterns in the death. If I should teach about death, what it means to really die to the world and the things of the world. Some of you, you're going to examine yourself and realize there's just a lot that is still alive in you and it's conflicting. It's conflicting. But there's nothing that hurts me like telling me, man, do you see that guy? Yes. Oh, that guy was a servant of God. Then what happened? No, they're still born again, but do you see that woman? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish you saw her in her earlier years. In her high school, she was the leader of the scripture union. She was, you know, the chairperson of this. And, you know, she was fervent. Is she still in church? Yes. Is she born again? Tick. But what is she doing in the kingdom? Nah. 
excuse upon excuse. Oh, my job. Oh, my marriage. You know, these days I have children. Oh, you know. And every excuse they could give, we probably have more responsibility a hundred times more. And we're still serving God. We're still serving God. You know? And you study those people. There was a time they went out of fellowship. Now, when they come back in fellowship, they don't know where to begin from. Because many things have left them and some are not willing to pay the price to catch up. Because you can disconnect from something when you're attuned. And then one time you come back and the realm, the age is way many levels ahead. You might not cope up. You can learn its language. But they mean, that doesn't mean that you function in its authority. And neither are you attuned to the timings of your mandate. Are you following what I'm saying? So we have people who are falling in the church. I'll teach about it. They're in church, but they're not functional. They're not functional. They're only taken from God. They're only taken. So Paul is telling people, no, we have seen people who have come out of fellowship. Some even say, oh, but I'm still born again. I go on my knees and I pray and I hear God. And they're right, they hear God. But only from where they're able to understand him, not necessarily from where he is inviting them. You see, you always move with a delusion that because you can understand God or be understood where you are, you always walk with a delusion sometimes, or in, in some instances that God wants you there. Let me tell you, God speaks even to the most fallen. Don't confuse that with being one with him. When Cain killed Abel, God came to him and asked him, why have you killed your brother? This is a man talking to God. Where is your brother? My, my brother's keeper. They are talking. So don't think that because you're talking to God, therefore you are attuned to divine purpose and will. I know people whom God speaks to every day, but they're rebellious. They're rebellious, but they hear the voice of God. They can hear it. At least they learned how to hear him. Are you following me, child of God? So, God has designed a certain order. You're not going to escape because you're very righteous. I was heartbroken once. I heard a minister say something. Not a minister, a Christian, a believer, say something that broke my heart to the core. And this is how they began. They said, they're in a conversation somewhere they said, you know, I'm going to the realization that the life of salvation is not about coming to church and then people see you at church and then people see you and then, you know, it's deeper than that. What relationship do you have with God? What consecration do you have with God? And right there, I could diagnose the person. This is the diagnosis. They are going through a phase where God is dealing with them in as far as how they have been maximizing their time in their personal space with God and in trying to understand what God is inviting them to, which is a good thing, they have indifferently disqualified the order of God, which is also a contributive factor of sharpening them or preparing them to be more effective in this place God is trying to invite them because they are not balanced enough to see the scripture in its full counsel. Who has understood it? It's like a, a woman who falls in love with a very, very good man and then they walk together and live together and have this wonderful relationship. And then this guy breaks her heart and probably cheats on her. And then she said, eh? she goes for lunch with a friend and begins her sentence like, men, eh? is something wrong with men? Exclamation mark. 
Then they start, they go rambling. I'm telling you, my dear sister, men, eh? Mm. How could the guy go, men, eh? You see? So they come and attack this ninja. And after attacking this ninja, they stereotype and put us all in the same boat with a ninja. You see, this is the mistake. That because the ninja hurt her, therefore every man from that day has become wrong. Maybe there were two ninjas like that and a few frogs in her story. See? Two ninjas and a few frogs. And then they say that the two ninjas and the few frogs are all men. That is the problem with the same Christian here. That maybe in God trying to tell her who is the common denominator in all these five guys you dated? You. You're the common what? Denominator. So instead of God helping you deal with you as an individual, because in the first place, why do you attract frogs? When there are kings walking. Everywhere. Until you meet a king, you'll never know. Ask my wife. You see? So, <laughs> Do you understand? So why is it that when a frog comes, it sees you? Are you following what I'm saying? So sometimes instead of you understanding that I think I have my issue, you are now going to do away with the whole idea of marriage, which is God's idea. Because you have a few inconsistencies in your narrative. Are you following what I'm saying? This was the issue with this person. I was heartbroken. Why was I heartbroken? How could this person write off a divine idea? The church of Jesus Christ is a body. How can you tell me, no, it's not about connecting and relating with the body. It's about your isolation. And, you know, you say things that carry no fruit. You say things that carry no fruit. And you want to ask this person, how many souls do you win a year in your polarized life, in your isolation? The Bible says in Ephesians 4, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, and pastors, which be teachers. That's what the Greek says, not and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints. In other words, it doesn't matter how anointed you are. There's a perfection that you can only find within the fellowship. For the work of ministry, because eventually... They're chiseling you to serve God to the edification of the body because at the end of the day, this is a body issue, not an individual issue. I think many people have asked me a question of why don't I have a YouTube channel? If you go on YouTube, you're not going to find Apostle Grace official. Not that any man who has a YouTube channel in their name is wrong. They don't have a Facebook uh, channel. I don't, you know, have a Apostle Grace Ministries.com. Not that any man who has done that uh, is wrong. Every man carries their own conviction. But from where I see things, Fanero is a part of the body. And I am a contributing factor leading in this. But that doesn't mean that one day when we go to heaven, our children won't take this responsibility. Your children will serve God. You see what I'm saying? So the ministry in this way, and I have always told my pastors, this thing is bigger than all of us. All of us. 
One day we'll go to heaven and the faiths will take over. Your sons, the Jeremiahs will take responsibility and also serve God. You see, it should be bigger than us. It should be bigger than us. Well, God has chosen us to lead in this generation. But a generation will come that knows God more than we do. But I don't want them to find Apostle Grace as a hindrance. Grace to Mega Ministries. No. Because that will end with me. And I want to build something by God that outlives us. Are you following what I'm saying? That outlives us. Fanero is a movement. That's how we introduce it. Because of divine order, he required us to lead. But it's a movement. All of you are part of something God is doing in the world. And we're writing history together. I'm doing this with you. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. So this person said, ah, no, fellowship is not, you know, it's not about going to church. I said, it's not about going to church. Everything almost they know they learned from church. Even the salvation they profess to carry, they received in the fellowship. Wow. It's like I find ministers who water down the perfect works of God. And sometimes behind it is either indifference, ignorance, or jealousy. Or wrong foundation. Because when the foundation is wrong, everything up you're building, no matter how long, it will, you know, wobble. And it will flow like anything. Somebody says a statement like, uh, one pastor said, Ah, no, you see, it's not about uh, numbers and, you know, numbers and said in my head <laughs> it's because you see people as a statistic but if you start to look at every life as a distinct element that Christ died for you'll understand that it's about numbers if in the world of fallen men success is built on numbers in the world of fallen men it is built on numbers, whether you want it or not. I remember when I was banking, uh, bosses used to say, numbers don't lie. If Satan in hell right now is planning, do you think he's planning for two people? Yeah? You mean he burns embers and you know, builds flames for two people? He has enough common sense not to waste time on two people. Everything he does is to make sure that he'll populate hell with people. Because the story is about numbers. In your businesses, the story is about numbers. Everything moves around numbers. Don't be mistaken. I'm not saying that every number is right. I'm only trying to say it's about numbers. When he sent us in the world, did he say, go to the few? Read Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, go you into the world. And what? To some creatures? Answer me to some creatures. Every creature. 2.9 billion Christians of 8 billion people in the world. Why? Because maybe he's jealous of another man who is having numbers. But if they were in his house, he would see differently. Or maybe he has not yet understood what it takes for people to come. Do you know what it's like? For 10, 15,000 people, 20,000, 40, 60,000 people to all align their programs to a vision. <laughs> Do you think it's easy? Can you run a bank without customers? Can you run a restaurant without customers? Can you run a hotel without customers? Can you win a ballot vote without people, without voters? Do you understand what I'm saying? Some people don't understand that these laws are older than all of us. 
They are bigger than all of us. They go beyond your personal prejudices and pride. God died for people. That's why I tell people in Fanero, every one of us is a soul winner. Every one of us. It's not in the evangelists. Every one of us, wherever you are at your workplace, you invest some time and ask, but are you born again? At least you talk. They might not take it, but let it heaven not that when you were in that bank, you took some time to reach out to a lost person. Are you following what I'm saying? But I know why this person was saying this. They were indifferent to the will and pattern of God. And he has designed fellowship to keep us but also grow us that I don't care how anointed you are, you will sit under a certain man to perfect you. That doesn't mean that everybody in this room I know better than in every aspect of life. There are people in this room I am sure if we started discussing certain fields in life, spiritual or otherwise, you could know better than I. That I appreciate and recognize. But it takes that humility of God to know that even though God has showed me this much, he requires me to be under some order. Every person that I've served with all my 20 years of life who polarized and isolated themselves from some sort of submission and order in fellowship is either fallen now or if they are functional, they are not effective. Everyone I know, I can mention name upon name, everyone I know in my head has not been a success because they frustrate divine order. He has told you there is a system of design to perfect you for the work of ministry, to the edification of the body. Because for me, much as I see you as an individual, I relate with you privately in your personal salvation. In the holistic picture, when I zoom out, I see a body. I don't see only you. I see a body. I have set some ahead of you in this, but they are part of the body. Paul, the apostle, was given the grace to lay the foundation of the New Testament. New Testament. Imagine New Testament. But he needed fellowship. In times when he was broken and disturbed, you find scripture telling us he ran to the house of Onesiphorus. He says, the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. It was not just giving water, juice, and tea. When he goes into the fellowship of the house of Onesiphorus, there were people that were gathered always with him to speak words, to strengthen his spirit, to run the course God had designed. Paul, yes, Paul. Yes, Paul. Jesus had 12 men with him and the extension of the hundreds that used to follow him. But most intimately, he had these people he used to hang around with, not because he needed any of them, but because God had designed through them to build the next fellowship. That is why when he ascends, the order then chooses one man called James to be the chief apostle and leader of the church in Jerusalem. On Peter, he said, I will build my church. Is church a congregation of machines and equipment? No. Church is a congregation of people and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Yes, he will raise distinctive people to lead certain movements but at the end of the day, it goes back to working through the system that he has designed you for. In the early church, in the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 42, the Bible says, when the church started to grow, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That means they were in continuous teaching. Don't think there were no prophets there. There were people prophesying like the Agabuses and the rest. 
But prophecy, you know, preaching, evangelistic, all of that was attuned to doctrine. Don't confuse that. I'm not saying that the prophet has no place, the evangelist. All of them have a place in the body of Christ, but they all must be aligned to the doctrine. So they continued steadfastly in the doctrine and read, come on, and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayer. And what happened? And fear, the Bible says, came upon all. And many wonders and signs were done among them. Why was God affirming and confirming the word in the early church? Because there was teaching. There was fellowship. There was breaking of bread. They had moments where they would share bread. Because there were a few number. And there was what? Prayer. Now what we have today in the polarized indifferent, they would prefer to connect to the doctrine and the prayer. And ignore the fellowship because they are anointed. No, this is order. This is divine order. I don't care how deep you are, how anointed you are, you will need the fellowship of the brethren and a continually and steadfast. That's a disciplined life. And let me tell you something, if God can discipline you that far to tell yourself that I'm going to be present every Thursday, every Sunday, every conference, I'm going to be present. If you can discipline your life that way, there is something propelling you and positioning you for his best. You might never know. Now, notwithstanding, there are people who want to be here, but they're not able. One, either they live far. Two, either their work schedules cannot allow them to be there, present. They are running a project that might not allow them to attend Sunday. And then they will go on live stream. Okay? Now, there's a man like that. And then there's a man who is free, has all time to themselves, but they don't have transport. And then they're going to walk here or borrow money to come. I know people in this church who walk here, 10, 15 kilometers, and some of them we try to give them transport when we can. And there's a person who walked all the way. And there's a man right now watching me. They're in the bedroom right now, in their bedroom. They have a Mercedes-Benz packed outside with a full tank. They are either chewing, you know, popcorn or eating a, a thigh of the chicken. And uh, this morning, this morning, they just didn't feel like driving to church. It just didn't feel like, okay, why? Uh, really, I just didn't feel like, okay? Now, you have attended live stream, and which is a good thing, because at least you didn't want to miss out on the message. But there's something incomplete about you. Why? Because God is judging these three hearts. He's judging the heart that even had the Mercedes and the girl who came in the rain or who borrowed money or who walked five kilometers and the man who is on live stream with you just in five kilometers away only because their work would not allow them to be in the presence. If you were God, would you look at these men the same? Do you understand what I'm saying? They're not the same. So I'm not saying judge everyone who didn't come to church or who didn't come last week or who came last month because this is not your place to judge because you don't know where they are with their God. But I'm talking to those people who don't have this as priority because you don't understand the importance of this. You don't understand how serious this is. 
Do you know what it's like for eight years to be present to you every Thursday and Sunday for eight years? You think I don't have a wife? I don't have kids? I don't want to go on holiday and chill out somewhere in Fiji or on an island somewhere in Bahamas and enjoy myself? You think we don't want that? We want it. Do you know what it's like to be consistent for all of these years and channeling our programs, all our plans and visions around your dreams? You see what I'm saying? So, there are people who are watching me on live stream only because they cannot come. We have people in live stream centers who leave their homes. They could as well have data in their room and watch, but they say, no, let me go and congregate with the fellowships. Now there are 550 something streaming centers, I think. Now, some are watching right now. They are tuning in right now. They are praying with us. They could have stayed home, but they understand the power of just coming and connecting, sitting next to a man and saying, let us watch this together. There is a power in this. There is a power in this. There is a power in this. There's power in this. There's power. There's power. So, some of you who pray under convenience, you are living a very selfish life. Go back to the scripture. He said in Hebrews, go back to verses 24, Hebrews 10. What did he say? He said, let us consider one another to provoke and to love and good works. Full colon, not forsaking their fellowship. Because sometimes fellowship is not only for you, but it also goes beyond people who are not you. I'll give an example. Some of you, you stay home sometimes, and sometimes you come to church. You're raising kids who are watching. They're watching. Children don't learn what you tell them. They learn what you do. You understand? And also you, the reason why you're struggling to go to church, some of you, your parents were exactly that. You just inherited an old language. It's wired within your system. So, your children watch. Hmm? Today you're going, tomorrow you're not. They're seeing. These little brains are downloading. They are three, four, seven, so they're still under your control. One day they'll be 15. One day they'll be 16. You see, if you study how children are, the first 12 years are very pertinent in the life of a parent with their child. First seven years, obedience. Obedience. And then from seven above, they start to discover themselves. All through into 12. In fact, in Jewish culture, 12 was considered adults. Then from there, as they start to discover themselves, they start a journey of commitment that is really realized usually after their university, 18 and above. That is why they say, oh, at 18 you can vote, at 18 you can get married. This is deep. And yet the most important, they tell you, children psychologists tell you, researchers tell you, anybody would tell you if you have studied how children function, the first most important years of a child are the first seven years of their life. Everything you are, you learned most when you were seven. That is why if you find a girl who has abused at that age, they might struggle in marriage, physically or otherwise. Everything you are was those first seven years. That trauma that hits you when you saw your father punch your brother, it put a certain defensive mechanism on you. You can't even keep a relationship. You find yourself lashing at everyone. You are defensive because even you were beaten when you were little. Now, your brain didn't even know how to relate with people and now you're growing up. It's killing your relationships and you you're deceiving yourself that you can keep a marriage when you can't even tame your tongue. But what happened? Seven. Something happened in your childhood. 
that damage the way you see life. And you think, oh, I'm going to pray a mountain to get a husband. Oh, he's going to come in your life. And you're going to try to revenge on him what your father did to you when you were little. He's going to pay the price of what that man did since you were little. Unless the gospel transforms you. Unless the word of God comes inside you and starts to change you like a child and starts to, you know, evolve through you and heal certain spaces in you. You know, I was dealing with a church member sometime who told me his father told him he was stupid. He grew up, it entered his head that he's stupid. It was just one day he was in fellowship. He raised his hands, praying, and the spirit of the Lord told him, you are not stupid. He healed at 50. For all his 50 years of life, most of it adult, the seed they planted in his head that was stupid was like that also. He was in fellowship when this thing lifted. What if he had isolated? Maybe he would not find the healing he needed. Now, if you can't do it for you, do it for your children. Carry them and say, I'm going to church. But we didn't understand what they were saying. That's okay. They are sitting in the presence. They are learning that on Sunday, dad has to go to church. You're disciplining them to know that there is a consistent and steadfast, disciplined life that does not compromise with God. If they learn this when they're 10, 7, 12, some of you, it's your children who have brought you to church because they were in a certain fellowship and maybe you came spying to say, what's happening? Or some of you, it's your family members who were unruly. <laughs> and then by God's grace, you started to see transformation in their life and then they started to affect you and then now you're also in the fold. And you realize now, since you sit in the presence, you are a better human being. You're a better human being. That is why I have a problem with anybody who downplays the work of salvation. Some people just sit in their chair. No, it's not about numbers. What do you mean? People come to salvation every week. Do you know how many thousands of people in this service right now were destined for hell? But because God created an institution, he put some sort of order for them. They are now destined for heaven because there was a fellowship they could go to and heal. Have you seen people committing suicide in public? No, it's in those isolations. Because if a man is not trained in life and discipline in a certain way, when they're alone, they spoil themselves a much. And fellowship is going to bring every kind of crazy person. Some family here, brought a brother of theirs. This guy is wild and in the world. Uh, he's a cowboy. You know. And so they tell him, ah, let's go to Fanero. We're in the MTN Arena. So this is the guy now telling me his testimony. And then he tells the sisters, ah, oh, oh, there are cute girls there. He says, ah, oh, yeah, 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 they are there. But you come and pray. He says, me, I'm coming for the girls. You come for service. I'm coming for the girls. I'm coming for the girls. I'm coming for the girls. So... The ninja comes in, they sit in the service, he's listening to this man speaking away. So while I'm in the service, a word of knowledge comes. And I say, there is a person here. You came for a girl, you came for a certain girl. You didn't come to pray, but something told you, let me look for some girl. And the guy said, oh God, I'm done. Now he tells me, 
out of fear, he knew that the next sentence was going to be, I was going to identify him. So he stands up to what? To run. As he gets up, the sisters hold him and say, no, see it. <laughs> so he tells me, through the service, he was like this, wait, God, help me. Help me. He sweated through the service. He never looked at the girls again. So, that the guy told me, from that day on, I met my teacher. So, imagine. So, he starts watching me. He starts watching. And he said, and it, it was in that meeting that I told myself that I will never enter the New Year drunk. Because I used to enter the New Year drunk. But from the time I met you, Apostle, I first come, they sent my message. And how fun. So I know it's still a work in progress, but at least, at least, yeah. <laughs> at least somebody is what? Somebody cared enough to bring him into fellowship. And he has a certain sense of God because somebody one day dared to bring him in that congregation. How dare you water that down? Because of vain philosophies. How dare you dishonor that? You know, sometimes I look at people and I say, but if there was a way you could take some people back, eh? you know how you get a phone and say, restore to original settings? <laughs> and some of you, you were just restored to original settings. This country would be in trouble. have a witness? Do I have somebody who can say, some people I wish they saw me in my original settings. Some of you were thieves, you were you have come from far. You can even sit in church and hear somebody talking. You, some of you, your parents even used to say, that boy, uh, nobody can talk to him. But now the language has changed. Except Apostle Grace, he can hear him. Hey, hey, hey. Are you following me? Don't underestimate the power of fellowship. Don't. So, your children are watching and they're going to run wild because you never showed them going. The people around you, if it's not for you, do it for the people God has sent you to be a light. I tell people when I look at the 500 and something branches and the branches across the world and TBN and the televisions, how can I not pray? I don't have a choice. I don't. Because every time I stand here, you desire something. You don't care how it comes, it has to come. I gotta be relevant. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So whether I first or pray, how will you know? All you know is that I have to be able to be effective in your life. You see? But that's how God has called us to. You also have people God has put in your life to have an effect on. If you cannot do it for you, do it for yourself. Because let me tell you something. It takes so much 
for a man to discipline themselves under a certain order and submitting to another life it takes so much because many of you you only submitted under circumstances conditions or otherwise it's very hard but by god's grace god is taming and breaking you every day the fashion says once this is done we will all come till we all come to the unity of the faith what is the unity of the faith fellowship right and the knowledge of the son and to a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ he says you cannot attain the fullness of Christ without understanding the unifying factor of the body and that is fellowship that we may not be babes which are tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the slay of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive that is why many people who isolate people who break off usually are misled they usually misled and when they are misled you can't tell them they are misled because they feel they are right but then when you look at the fruit i always ask the person since you left that fellowship are you better and many of them are not better in any aspect they are bitter than they were in the fellowship they are more wicked than they were when they're in the fellowship they are more less effective than they were when they're in the fellowship of believers which fellowship they had a room about you know they had a false story about you say but while you were in it did you see its fruit he said yes so when you came out how come you're now an indifferent person how come you're an indifferent person how come you're not better you should be better you should show us a better fruit than the fellowship you came from are you following what i'm saying because they don't understand this they don't understand this talk about commissioning again what i spoke about in the beginning that it doesn't matter how anointed you are god has designed an order to grow you to perfect you in the parts that are incomplete look at paul paul was given the mystery of the new testament he laid down the new testament three quarters of the bible new testament is one man called apostle paul and in his consecration god tells him i don't care how deep you are paul you need to submit yourself to this order he said in galatians how i went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which i preach among the gentiles who did he communicate to about the gospel which he preaches among the gentiles he says privately to them which were of reputation least by any means i should run or had run in vain should run or had run in vain in other words even though god had given me the mystery of Christ in us the hope of glory the salvation of the gentiles i had to go to men which were of reputation men which were ordained in the order of the fellowship god had designed and submitted my message to them because if i don't do even though i have a message i could be disqualified i could be disqualified Do you know even if you have a mandate by god you can be disqualified if you break divine order oh 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 Look at Moses. Moses is called to lead the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh into the promised land and he is God's choice. But then he becomes complacent about a simple principle. He refuses to circumcise one of his boys. Oh my goodness. God almost slew Moses with that kind of anointing. Zipporah came through. 
Bible says the Lord sought to kill him. The Lord sought. Zipporah came through. The Bible says she took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband about to me. God had literally switched his assignment on a man's life because he was breaking a pattern. So don't take these things lightly. Some of you take some things lightly, but they're not light. I know Paul has been equipped, he has been empowered by God to lay the foundation of the mystery. But God says, there's a fellowship where you have to go and submit it. He had to go three years after Arabia, Damascus. Now he goes to Jerusalem, to James and Peter. He says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. And to James, and he says, no other apostle did I see. So he had to submit whatever the Lord had given him to the voices God had established over the church in that time. Who are you? Some people say, me, if God has told me, I have to. I'll go. Let me tell you, he doesn't have God's blessing because he has simply told you. It has God's blessing because you've submitted what he has revealed to you under the pattern of vehicle or channel through which heaven has laid system for it to go or move or flow. Some people don't understand that. They don't get it. They don't get it. So you can corrupt even what God has consecrated because you don't honor the order under which he has designed it to flow. Under which he has designed it to flow. So Paul understood this. That is why in verses 9, again of Galatians 2, he says, And when James, Cephas, and John, which seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me to the uncircumcised, as it was to them to the circumcised, he said, They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, koinonia, they blessed us in lieu of the anointing and graces on their lives to God to preach the gospel to the heathen as they to the circumcised. Paul needed the hand of Peter. Paul needed the hand of James. Paul needed the hand of John. And he could only find that under some fellowship. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh no, but God has given me the grace to the foundation of the New Testament. Oh yes, it's true. But there is a man he has given the keys. He appears to Peter and tells him, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on the earth, it shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on the earth, it shall be lost in heaven. There are people I know who are just a hand away to function fully. But they won't respect that order. They think that they'll go on a prayer mountain, bypass that order by confusing the revelation given them with the grace to commission them. You're joking. God can give you such a great grace. It might not be on the altar. It might be in business. It might be everywhere. But there is a hand he has consecrated to open that gate for you, to open that door for you, to open that realm for you. And it's in the order he has designed it. It's in fellowship. So you see a person saying, oh no, me, I don't need any man. I can go to the mountain. You go to the mountain all you want. Paul would have stayed on the mountain. But he needed people. Yes, Jesus would have just preached and ascended to heaven, but he needed 12 men. And he didn't need them. Yes, but he needed the system. Do you understand what I'm saying? I tell people I am apostle grace. I'm anointed and I am ranked high. But there are people in this ministry, even who I know I'm ranked higher than. But every time I sit with them, something stirs in my spirit. And that for fellowship edifies me. Can you be edified? Oh, yes. 
by the least expected. By the least expected. We have a girl at the office. She cleans the office. You know, she cleans the office. And one day, I just took time to study her. I just took a lot of time because I'm that kind of person. I can study you for years and you don't know. I just studied this girl who cleans the office. And the Lord ministered to me. I got a seed and I sowed in her. I'd never told her why. But the Lord ministered to me through a girl who cleans the office every morning. She's a businesswoman. Successful. She makes a lot of money. But Monday morning, you'll find her cleaning Apostle Grace's office. Do you understand what I'm saying? It ministered to me. I saw how people can have everything but still count all things but done. Not that I've not lived that life, but when I find a man that provokes me into righteousness, it stirs me into a certain way. And look at who was ministering to me. Not a YouTube preacher. Not a Facebook sensation. But somebody cleaning. Because God is in those things. God is in those things. And I looked at the fervency that does this every year in and out. And I remember one time I wanted to post her into something. She said, Apostle, meet the mandate I have before God. She told me, even if I never do anything in life, I shall be satisfied because this is what I know to do. This is what I know to do. So this is not somebody who is disadvantaged or poor. No, she's not poor. I told you she runs a business in town. But before that business came, she was cleaning. When that business came, I observed to see she's still cleaning. She leaves her business, cleans and comes back to serve in her workplace. You see, now that person, sometimes I sit with these men and we're sharing and a man shares something and you say, wow, I'm actually defined. Why? Because I believe in the power of fellowship. I understand that there are things I will not get on the mountain. There's things I will get from a life that has been disciplined and can live a certain way. These security guys can teach you things. That is why most of my time, I hang around such people. My closest people that I hang around most are the least people in this ministry. Some people have access to me more than some people. Why? Because they minister to me in a certain way. That's the life that I lived. That's the life that I lived. Some people don't know why I married this woman. For the first time, I'm going to say it on camera. My wife used to clean toilets in the church. She used to clean toilets in the church. She used to clean toilets. Back there, and, and some of you remember where we came from, the worst toilets you knew. They were bad. But her and some girls in the evening, <laughs> toilets I never used. But then, we got to know the girls that were cleaning toilets. That's where my wife was. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you see, some of you, you think God looks up there. No, he's looking down there. That thing you can do and the whole world is not watching. The whole world is not watching. You see, learn to do those things that hide you from the public but minister to the heart of God. I know people here who are seated here, but they go up country and they go in there and they preach the gospel and they come back over the weekend and they're working in their offices and you think they're normal people. Those men, they bless me. They minister to me. You see, Paul speaks of a man, I think he was a Paphroditus, the fellow who fell sick. Huh? This fellow fell sick, but he stayed ministering. Huh? 
that read Philippians 2.25, I supposed it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. And the Bible says, for he longed after you all. I want you to read that. Give me the message version of that so you can understand Epaphroditus. Verses 25. Uh-huh. But right now I'm dispatching Epaphroditus, my good friend and companion in work. You sent him to help me out. Now I'm sending him to help you out. Verses 26. He has been wanting in the worst way to get back to you, especially since recovering from the illness you heard about. He's been wanting to get back and reassure you that he's just what? He's just fine. But you see, nearly, verses 26, he nearly died as you know. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, God had mercy on me as Paul. His death would have been one huge grief piled on top of all others. Let me tell you something. There are people who have ministered to me and I find myself entreating God for them because I know what it would do to me if I lost them. Some of you don't understand that. Epaphroditus served to a point of death. And if he had died, if he had died, Paul knew not only was it going to be a loss to the church, but to him because of his ministry. And he beseeched God that he learned not upon such sorrow on him. Please save Epaphroditus for my sake. And God saved Epaphroditus because of Paul. Do you know Dorcas was raised because she was sewing clothes? Only that. One time a woman died and the guys realized, oh my God, my next suit. My next suit. And do you know there's a place where we as men of God are allowed to make such prayers? You say, but God, this person, the way they are serving me, they can't die now. And God would hear only because of that. He says, you shall serve the Lord your God and he shall take sickness from the midst of thee. Do you know there's something that preserves men who serve God? Besides the generic grace of healing is for the children's bread. But there's also that extra grace that kicks in because you're a servant of God. Heaven would lose much for the death of some people. For the death of some people. But you see, all of this is rewarded and defined in the place of fellowship. What if they had polarized and stayed only in their own anointing? So Paul needed these three pillars. He needed them. He needed the fellowship. There's a story of one of the greatest revivalists that we read about in the early 1900s. Again, one young man called Ivan Roberts. Ivan Roberts was very instrumental. He was a praying man, a man of prayer. In fact, one time somebody asked him the secret of his power. And then he took somebody in the bedroom and showed him a jute sack. And it had two holes. The jute sacks are those sacks we used to have back in the day before the plastic sacks came. You remember those old sacks? Yeah? You remember those old sacks? They were all like thread. Okay? So he used to fold one and lean on it. And they say it had two holes because of his knees. He was a praying man. And then... Evan Roberts went through some sort of criticism, persecution, and indifference, and the devil started to push Evan Roberts out of fellowship. A notable man, 1905-1906, Welsh Revival, that was the boy. He brought many to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then a lady, I believe the story calls her Penny Lewis, she takes him away and tells him, you know what? You just need to isolate and disconnect from people. She gave him a home to live. Go there, disconnect from people, seek your God, be private there, and just be there. And the story said, when Evan Roberts disconnected from the order God had designed, he never came back. That's when his brook dried very early. 
continued being functional, but it failed to kick off again. Died at 72. But the golden years were the 1905s, 1906s. And those earlier years, about five, seven, eight years of his function, they were really fervent until somebody took him out of the fellowship he needed. Evan Roberts was no more. The brook dried instantly and the ravens stopped feeding. But he stayed spiritual, but not functioning in the body of Christ. Why? Because when he went through all that persecution, he just needed the right fellowship, not being isolated from the fellowship. So I tell people, if you feel that I am stumbling you here, or in any way this ministry has failed you, go to another place, but be in a fellowship. Don't leave the body. Don't disconnect from fellowship. You can go to another one, I will understand, but don't disconnect from fellowship. It's amazing what it does. It's amazing what it does. Every major move, every major move or paradigm shift in history has always come through some sort of divine order. When God was bringing the law to Israel, even through Moses, it had to come to Israel, not to our futures and people in Israel. Because that's how God works. You study scripture from Genesis to Revelation. When he visits the household of Abraham, he comes to his household. When he comes to the house of, uh, of the Roman centurion, Cornelius, huh? when he goes to Cornelius, God didn't put the spirit on Cornelius alone. He put it on the household of Cornelius. In the early church and the baptism of the spirit in Acts 2, he told them, first come in one accord, then I'll send the spirit. He could have said, you know, let me first put the spirit on James, John, and Peter, which are the pillars. Then after that, I can later come individually and go touching everyone. He said, no, James, Peter, John, all of you get in that one group. Get in one institutionalized system of fellowship wherewith I can come and endow you with something. And when the Bible says they were in one accord, the Bible says the spirit of God came and baptized them and gave them utterance. And then they go out in a congregation and then they speak the same in that fellowship. And the power of the Lord goes and saves 3,000 people. When John is praying, he says, that which we have seen, that which we have tasted, that which we have touched concerning the word of life, that which was from the beginning, which we have truly seen and fellowshiped with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what we give you. And he says, and we pray that you might have fellowship with us for our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Jesus Christ. He's saying, you come and connect to what we have because it's what we received of our Father. And the instruction is that we have to send this in the principle and vehicle of fellowship because our fellowship is with the Father. Now imagine God has released something through men which have opened their spirits up for fellowship. And you say, me, I don't need fellowship. You deal with that. Me, let me go on the mountain and look for it. You won't find it. You won't find it because you're frustrating divine order. Go to John chapter 20. Jesus meets his disciples and then he shows them his scars. And after showing them the scars, the Bible says he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And when he said, receive the Holy Ghost, the verses down, the Bible says, but Thomas was not with them. Thomas John 20, 22, and when he had breathed on him, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Verses 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Why didn't he say, let's wait for Thomas? 
Why didn't he look for Thomas to give him heals? Now, some of you say, why was Thomas doubting? Let me explain why Thomas was doubting. Thomas had disconnected from a certain flow that God had released earlier. Those men too could have doubted, but they were available in some sort of fellowship to cleanse their vision and their precision of sight to see as they ought to. Thomas, I don't know where Thomas was and why Thomas would meet such a strong omitting. But there's something these ones receive that Thomas never received. Then he comes, show me your hands. Now, imagine if Jesus had just finished releasing the spirit on those fellows and then ascended. Thomas would forever have lived a doubting man, not because he wasn't fervent, nor had he not loved the Lord, but because he was not where the heavens wanted him at that particular point. Thank God Jesus comes back to him and tells him, touch this, feel this. If Jesus was not there, Thomas was going to lose something. And amazingly, even though he does not doubt the Christ letter after they show him the scars, we don't see him breathe on Thomas. Because what had come was for the fellowship, not for a few individual men. There are things God will send for the congregation. That's why you attend service. And God knows the difference between the man who wanted it, could have been there, but is busy, versus the man who just has no priority in life. They do whatever they want because they're their own man. I mean, who can tell you what to do? God can design your heart. So I'm not saying judge people. I'm only saying examine yourself against this truth. One time I was in Kumba University. Listen to this. And then I called out a young woman and I said, the Lord tells me that you have a swelling in your breast. And the young woman said, no, I don't. And I told her, go and check yourself. I asked a few ladies to accompany her. It's in your left breast. So she comes back after a few minutes and said, it is there. I just didn't know it was there. So I ministered to her and I told her, check again. She went out and came back and the swelling had disappeared. Do you know why God healed that swelling? Because she was seated in fellowship. In fellowship. One time I was in fellowship somewhere in Kawempe, and I was, I was speaking to people. The Lord gives me a word of knowledge of a lady who was to die in a car accident that day. And I said, the Lord shows me there's an accident. Let's pray for this lady. We prayed for the lady. We left the service, and the story she tells us is, she traveled, I think, three kilometers from the place we were at, and the car lost its brakes and somehow rammed into the bike she was seated on. And she wakes up, and the wheel of the car is just three centimeters from her head, and her head was not crushed. Not because, you know, maybe it was very prayerful, but because she was in, a, in an order God had designed to save her. Some of you, these meetings you come to, they're here to save your life. If you miss service because it's unavoidable, go on YouTube and listen. Listen once, listen twice. If something hasn't sunk, continue listening to it until it consumes you. But the point is, don't play the things of God because God wants his best for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word this afternoon. 
Thank you because you have spoken to us so intricately and intimately. Thank you for your precise instruction. We repent where we have not been aligned right, attuned right, moved or functioned in our selfish uh, understanding of things and disconnected from the source and flow you have designed for us. We pray, help us, help us all. And I pray for the sick if you're here. May God heal you right now. Those of you who are struggling in your marriages, may God restore you. Those of you who are struggling in your businesses, in whatever you do, may God advantage you and advance you and make things so easy for you. But above all, I pray that may heaven create always time for you to enjoy and receive from his presence. I just want to pray an anointing. I've been feeling it this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, for that person who has asked for the anointing. Receive it in the mighty name of Jesus. Receive that anointing that takes you to the next level of ministry. Receive that anointing that takes you to the next level of function. Receive that anointing that takes you to the next level of effectiveness in the mighty name of Jesus. Give the Lord a of praise. Give the Lord a mighty hand clap of praise. Thank you, Jesus. Now, as we finish this service, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and you say, today, I want to receive your God, the God you're talking about as my Lord and Savior. Repeat this as after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you because you died for my sins and you were raised for my glory. Today, I have believed with my heart to give you my life and receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm born again. Change me. Transform me. Because only you can. This Amen. sermon has been brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number plus 256-200-999400 or email us at info at You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Fenero Ministries International. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowship at the Uma Upper Gardens from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. and for our Sunday services at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. at the Uma Multipurpose Hall. Fenero, make manifest.